Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me is a man who is becoming deeply acquainted with the pleasures and the pain of American suburban fatherhood. It's James Hall. That's accurate. Lots of pleasures, though, you know, particularly around fatherhood. Okay, so um, nothing in this podcast is investment advice. Even if it sounds like advice, it isn't. Uh, don't take it as advice. While we try not to, we sometimes get our numbers wrong. So do your own research. Investing is risky. Yeah. So James, for your for your landscaping and home improvement needs, are you a a Home Depot man, a Lowe's man, an Ace Hardware man? What what? Where do you go to? Near me, there's Ace and Lowe's, and Home Depot is a little farther away. So, but Home Depot has, you know, like white goods, and they deliver and all that. Anyway, all of the all of the above, I guess. I am yeah. not super acquainted with this, but it does seem like is it Home Depot kind of caters to the um, the contractor, I think, a little bit more, don't they? Like the 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 guys who are a little bit more of the pros, but. Yeah, I I don't know that that's always been my my impression. Yeah, I mean Lowe's Lowe's has has that a section in their store about um, business like contractor whole section. I think they both kind of do that. They they're a little different in terms of company culture. I think their margins are a little different. I think Lowe's is a a little bit higher margins last time I checked, but it's been a while. So, anyways, yeah. Anyway. But Ace has always been the place for the uh, the the helpful hardware folks, right? <laughs> the, the you know when you go there by yourself for your own little 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 thing. Uh, anyways, so today we're not talking about hardware. We're talking about cars. We're talking with Tu Lee from Sino Auto Insights. We're going to talk about uh, these EV startups and EV companies that are just going through the roof right now, from Tesla to Neo and more, and kind of China's place within the the EV sector. In addition to that, we're going to go over a, a few things about uh, JD Health, Suning and Alibaba Meituan, and a, a few uh, issues around uh, antitrust regulation as well. Uh, you can follow uh, follow me uh, on. Uh, Twitter at Elliot Zagman, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N, and James at James Hull X, J-A-M-E-S-H-U-L-L-X. And be sure to go to techno.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China tech. And also, uh, if you listen to the podcast and you like the podcast, please give us a positive review uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Four stars on Apple Podcasts. Give us a, a nice review as well. That's That's super helpful. But anyways, let's get into the meat and potatoes here. One is uh, JD Health had their their IPO in Hong Kong. Uh, it was it did very very well. They raised three point five billion dollars, and their at last at last check they uh, their share their share price jumped seventy two percent from the article that I'm reading. They did super well, and I I don't know from a pricing standpoint. Uh, I, I didn't get in on it, but I, I like JD Health a lot because I think any area where in in the e-commerce sector where the uh, the quality of the delivery and the logistics where you need to ensure that it is either on time, both on time and delivered in a certain way when it comes to 
obviously healthcare is, is a, a main area here. Um, I think JD has a very, very strong moat and a very strong brand recognition and the, the logistics, um, you know, the logistics network to pull it off. So I like the fundamentals of, of this, but, uh, you know, we'll have to see, uh, from a, a pricing perspective where it plays out. James, do you have any thoughts on, uh, JD Health? Yeah. So I think the company was founded in 2018. They do have revenues, though, from 2017, so I'm sure that's maybe something allocated out of JD Group. But yeah, they, they focus on Chinese and Western medicines, uh, nutrition products, healthcare products. So not just kind of your pharmacy RX type stuff. They, in the last 12 months, they've had a rapid growth of like 76%. EBITDA margins are positive. Looks like free cash flow is positive. And then, but net income is quite a bit negative, and I'm guessing that's due to some uh, ESOP. But, but anyway, yep, JD Health. It's it's uh, trading. Let's see, today's what's today, December 11th. It's trading at 122 Hong Kong dollars, and it's at a market cap of in this is Hong Kong dollars again, 381 billion. So not bad. There, the the problem with e-commerce has always been that it's so competitive that it's so hard to make any margins. Which is why you know, you've seen you know Tencent's done so well. well no, not Tencent, but uh, Alibaba's done so well going into cloud. You know Amazon as well. You know with JD, they haven't had the success going into some of those other more profitable spaces. But this is an area where you could charge a higher margin, right? If you need to get some of these higher quality, I know these more uh, kind of time sensitive delivery, um, the, where the delivery method is is particularly sensitive, you can you can actually hit margins there. Uh, so that's something that I think is has a lot of potential there. But let's move on because, you know, we want to hit a lot of topics here. So Sooning and Alibaba have uh, announced a new uh, partnership. James, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Not, it's not really like a partnership. It's more okay. like, like Sooning's having some problems. Sooning's chairman pledged all of his and his son's shares to a company below Alibaba, like inside Alibaba's system. I think it's a it's a domestic company, Alibaba's company. It's sort of a bad sign for Sooning. Their bonds are not performing very well. It's you know maybe there's something going on here um, behind the scenes. And if Alibaba has the shares. If something really hits the fan, you know, maybe Alibaba could something pretty big could happen with Sooning here. So we, you know, we don't know, we don't know exactly what, but let me see here. It looks like, I mean, these guys have been burning cash for years, Sooning. And while they were profitable in like 2017, 2018, 2019, they took a massive loss. 15.8 billion Chinese renminbi and then in the last 12 months it's like 12.4 billion so these guys are having a really tough time and i know that they 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 did invest in in like sue fresh mm. they tried to do like go into the grocery and stuff which seems to be a little bit out of their core but anyway also, what are they? Who are they competing with? They, 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 my my thought. I mean, I I am not. I don't know that much about Sooning aside from just understanding, you know, kind of the the perception of them when I lived in China. And you know, I remember in kind of the earlier part of the last decade, 
They they really had yeah they they were known for their electronics yeah, appliances business, right that they were kind of the go to yeah, for electronic products for your phones so, for your laptops yeah you know household appliances digital equipment uh, washing machines refrigerators all that all that good stuff you go to a Suning shop and they have it but now now why would you why would anyone go to Suning instead of JD at this point um, it does seem like like JD has really you know taken their territory and also. Along with that, you know, JD, Alibaba, Pinduoduo, look at their the cash that they have on hand and their war chest that they can, you know, go after that that market with. You know, it's really hard to see Suning, you know, competing very aggressively. There. Yeah, the the stock is Suning stock is at a very low, and this is traded as an A share. Um, mm. It's down to like eight RMB. It hasn't been this low in in uh, five years, so or at least more than five years. Let's see. It's been mm. it was back in like 2014. It was it was kind of this low. Well, it got it got down around this low in in April. So, you know, anyway, rough times. So Meituan switching it up here. So they had their their Q3 earnings call, and I just kind of took a, a look through. I used uh, Centio to kind of use their kind of. Um, smart summary functions to kind of take a look through and interesting stuff that's going on here. We got, um, they have a new business, a new whole new, uh, they call it a community group purchase model, which they launched in Q3. Like Pinduoduo? Uh, which is basically, it's a little, it's a, I think it's actually a little more clever than, okay. than, than Pinduoduo. So it's, it's next day delivery. It's for lower tiers it's for mainly grocery and it's and it's for lower tier because uh, those people tend to be more price sensitive and it's mainly grocery because also those people tend to be more price sensitive. One of the funny comments on the call was um, it's more for old people who still like to buy grocery and cook for themselves. And then the comment added, which I kind of laughed at was for some reason, you know, why, why <laughs> like, why do people, why do people buy groceries and cook for themselves? It's so bizarre. Um, but yeah, they expect to be in a thousand cities by the end of the year, which is mind boggling. But I, I think the idea here is you have, you know, in China, everything's communities. You have your Xiaochu, right? May, so I think what this is, is your Xiaochu can order your community, can order food, and it all gets delivered kind of together the next day. So if you're sort of, you know, maybe in a little suburb community or you're in like a second, third tier, fourth tier city in a community, instead of getting your delivery in 30 minutes or two hours or whatever, they kind of group everyone's orders from that day together and then deliver it the next day. And I think that's very interesting because it's kind of from a grocery perspective, it makes a ton of sense from the way China's real estate's organized. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And also it's it's kind of you get that demand aggregation on a local basis, which is also pretty neat. I think what Pinduoduo is doing for their grocery and Duoduo Mai Tai thing uh, is they're focusing on the suppliers and trying to go from from that route. So mm -hmm. it's a totally different strategy. Also interesting stuff. They they. So their aspiration as a firm is to deliver everything to consumers' homes, okay? 
they grew two JVs in key categories, so flowers and similar to JD Health, medicine. Hmm. And so another kind of interesting, you know, peek into the Chinese, uh, you know, situation right now is their margins are down. And one of the reasons is, and they quote, and I'm reading here, the strict lockdown policy of many Chinese universities continue to negatively impact the recovery of our food delivery transaction volume from college students. So there's, you know, you, we read there's no cases in China, but there's still quite a bit of uh, lockdown on Chinese universities. It, it's odd that it that it decreases that number. I mean, it's, and it's we, impacting them. We've seen in the states, COVID has you know what they've done for DoorDash and Uber Eats has been you know a huge boon for them. I'm guessing they're maybe they're not maybe there's the restrictions about food delivery being able to go into the universities. So maybe it's it's something like that, which would be mm. extremely strict. You know, I'm looking at returning mm. to China and one of the things is that you have to do a quarantine for 14 days in a hotel. You don't get to choose what hotel you go to. It's all sort of random. And all the hotels are kind of different. So some allow delivery of like quite you know, goods and some don't, and some allow delivery of food, and some don't. And so, like, if you don't get food delivered, you have to. You only have what the hotel offers you for fourteen days. It's kind of rough. But anyway, that's that's Meituan. Yeah. I think uh, antitrust. Antitrust. So we might have mentioned this last episode, but basically, all the big internet tech companies they all get questions on it on their earnings calls if they if they had earnings calls after. This news came out and most of them did. They all kind of say it's not a big deal. You know, you were seeing uh, evolving tech industry, internet industries evolving and slowly changing. So they would expect to see, you know, regulations evolve and change. That's super interesting. You know, we, the U.S., you don't see much. Well, now we're seeing some, but it's been, it's been a while. It's a lot of talk. It's yeah. a lot of, lot of. So the whole thing is a lot of sound and fury. The, the whole idea is to curb anti-competitive behavior, uh, basically colluding on sharing sensitive consumer data. So we're probably going to see some sort of more data privacy rights or something going on here. Also alliances that squeeze out smaller rivals. Um, and I think mm. we see a lot of that in the uh, China's industry, internet industry. I mean, they recently outlawed um, kind of partnerships between you know, exclusive partnerships between brands and e-commerce platforms. Is that right? I read something yeah, about Alibaba's that. Alibaba's kind of yeah. done that a lot. So then there's also subsidizing services at below cost to eliminate competitors. So that's another, you know, there's a lot of subsidizing going on and, and uh, you know, to gain market share. And, you know, if, if you're kind of eliminating competitors, maybe Suning's one of those, mm. you know, it's, it's rough. And then the other thing that's kind of a, I think, a bigger deal is that it's also requiring that companies that operate as a as a VIE variable interest entity, they have to apply for specific operating approval, which means they need to first register and say, "Hey, raise their hand and go, we're a VIE," and then put their name on a list. And that's basically, I think, what what this is all about. So you, I think, they'll probably get approval. I think that's going to be an issue. But I think what is going to happen is the government's going to come away with this with a very cheap way of creating a list of all the companies that operate as a VIE. 
Uh, and mm. then what they do with that list and how they kind of deal with it later will be kind of the important thing, in my opinion. And then also the next thing is Hong Kong. I just, this just came across the Bloomberg here. Uh, Hong Kong gets Chinese audit papers that the U.S. has been asking for for you know ten plus years, hmm. and this is this is I think a big deal. You know, Hong Kong is still a separate regulator from China. Hong Kong's obviously part of China, but it's a separate regulator, separate laws and accounting sort of regulation. So that's a big deal, and maybe you know just maybe this is a trial to allow some sort of you know kind of separate regulating body access to these. Uh, audit working papers, and that maybe you know if it, if that trial goes well, maybe that'll be expanded to the U.S. or other other areas. M- my thought is that if you're an investor investing in, for example, a a Meituan that is listed in or JD Health in Hong Kong yeah. or in or JD Health or Alibaba's Hong Kong shares, uh, far more appealing than their definitely uh, U.S. ADRs because it makes them accountable to Hong Kong regulators and they, the, the biggest gap or the biggest, you know, problem when it comes the fiduciary issue is, is resolved potentially. I think it's a big, I think it's a big deal. And I, I, you know, we have seen some news across the wires that there are a lot of funds that are selling, you know, the ADRs, the American depository receipts and buying the shares in Hong Kong. So I, I think that's a trend. I mean, this news is just going to kind of keep that trend going. I think when this, when this, uh, you know, I think the House did just pass unanimously the pot, the the law that the Senate passed earlier. Yeah, the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that says that if China's com- Chinese U.S. listed Chinese companies do not uh, adhere to the listing requirements that they kind of put out there, and one of them is uh, you know like these audit working papers is a piece of it that they need to be delisted in, in three years. So, you know, that, that's just a, a clock that's out there. Trump's probably going to sign this thing and make it a law. And so it's, you know, it's there. And if it, if it doesn't happen, then as you get closer and closer to that period, you don't know, there's more uncertainty for these ADR shares. It's kind of hard to under, know what's going to happen. If you're a long-term investor, yeah. it might make more sense to, stomach some of the foreign forex swap cost which is not that much really uh, and move over to hong kong so anyway and if they can if they can regulate them better than you know if they have better a better regulatory regulatory structure than they do in the states for that then you know that's that's you know it's it's a win-win situation for for investors at least yeah Uh, anyways let's move on We have so we have Tuli from uh, Sino Auto Insights. Uh, yeah, we're we're going to talk about uh, the the EV environment right now. Yeah, so let's move on to our conversation with Tuli. Joining us today for his second appearance on the China Tech Investor Podcast, the man behind Sino Auto Insights, whose newsletter you can subscribe to at sinoautoinsights.com, a man whose physical body resides in Beijing but who can still tell you where he's from by pointing to a location on the palm of his hand. It's too late. Too, thanks for joining us. James Elliott, thanks for having me. <laughs> Actually, it's the back of my hand, not the palm, right? So no, I, I do the palm, you do the palm of my right. I do the palm of my right hand. You could do the back of your left hand or the palm. Of your yes. Hand. So for, for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, 
It is a uh, Michigan looks like a hand. So I'm from Michigan. I'm from the west side of Michigan. Two is from the east side of Michigan. And Michigan looks like a hand. So Michiganders will point to where on the hand they are from. Mm. And I'm left-handed, so I use the palm of my hand or the the back of my left <laughs> hand to show people. Um, That's another thing we have in common. I'm also left-handed. Ten um, <laughs> percent right. of the world left-handed. Left-handed Michiganders who love cars. That's a <laughs> that's that's a good that's, that's a that's a good club to be in. Anyways, so we're going to talk about EVs, the the kind of frantic and um, super super hot stratospheric rise that um, some of these uh, EVs have been in, particularly China-related EV companies. And 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 when we when we talk about EVs, so much whether or not the actual market is or is not in China, so much still does uh, revolve around China. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this. But uh, to let's because we're an investor-oriented podcast, so I bought shares of Neo, like not a lot, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, just just to, to kind of play with it, just a little over a year ago. Just looking at my portfolio right now, it says that I am up over a thousand percent on that investment. And yet I am still not that bullish on the company as it is. Tesla, I mean, we can be more bullish on Tesla, but you know, Tesla has had a similar stratospheric rise. So what's going on here and why are these electric vehicle companies just shooting through the roof these days? Well, first of all, I think uh, next time you see James and I, dinner's on you. Yeah. And <laughs> the, 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 you know, it's uh, so happy holidays, guys. It's, it's, uh, it's been a tough 2020, uh, but we still have a lot to be thankful for, especially those folks that invested in Tesla and Neil, right? Especially earlier this year. Now, with regards to your question about what's behind these insane share prices, I think some of it is non-transportation related. COVID causing a lot of money uh, to be on the sidelines and needing a place to go. I also think SPACs made it a little bit easier to invest. And then we look at FOMO and then Robinhood, right? Because a lot of retail investors have moved into Neo and Tesla. Uh, and then we can look at transportation-related things. The UK is actually, and the EU is actually, um, has a high uptake of EVs, which is surprising this year because everyone thought China was going to lead the way. With recent announcements from California, the UK, and Japan banning petrol engines in 2030 and 2035, that's only really increased the frenzy even more so over the last few months. And, and, you know, I think Tesla has a, plays a big part as kind of helping these other EV companies and pulling them up along mm. with their share price. But the NEO, I think that's the second highest, uh, growth stock this year. So it's, mm. it's crazy. It's crazy. It's really crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, so it sounds like essentially there's there's four things here. One is just that so much, you know, the the Federal Reserve, the you know the the stimulus programs from governments, you know, has put more cash out there for folks to invest in the stock market. Two is we have kind of the Tesla effect. Tesla has been doing so well that if we, a lot of these investors might think, okay, well, 
what are the other the other options? So if you're an Xpeng or you're a Neo, right? They start to look at that. Three would be the Robinhood effect that you have these kind of higher profile companies or higher profile brand names where if you're just a, an average Joe who you who wants to invest in something that you think is cool or sexy, maybe you put some money into that. And then four, we have that we we are seeing a lot of movement from these governments around the world to move to to electric vehicles. Would you would you agree with that kind of uh summary of, of of those factors yeah i think that's a, a pretty good summary of uh, generally some of the force behind these insane share prices I, I, so i'm curious um yeah thanks for coming on too i'm i'm kind of curious like what how quickly do you think evs will be able to sort of replace the ice internal combustion engine vehicles I mean, I know that's like a really difficult uh, kind of predictive question. There's a lot of things happening, but is this something that's like 20 years, 10 years, within 10 years, kind of ballpark? What do you What do you think? Well, let's well let's break that down into two pieces, right? So uh, the UK is banning petrol and diesel fueled uh, vehicles by 2030, right? So the sale of them will be uh, uh, eliminated. Let's say within the next 20 years. Okay. Globally, does that mean 20, 25 years? Does that mean the banning? So like even old ice cars will have to switch over or is it just the new, any new vehicles will have to be electric? Yeah. So just any new vehicles, but okay. what'll likely happen is that they'll grandfather some restrictions in that allows those ICE vehicles to eventually just be taken off the road, right? So in China, I think the limit is 10 years or 15 years uh, for, for a car before it needs to be taken off the road. So I could see a scenario where certain or most countries would give 25 years, and I'm just throwing out a number that says, okay, you have this car, it needs to, it's a, an ICE, and um, we're going to limit you f- to get it off the road once it's 25 years old or once it's 20 years old. So the second part answer or the second answer I would say is let's say over the next 50 years, maybe you'd see a world where 99% of the vehicles are uh, new energy vehicles. They could be hydrogen, they could be battery. uh, But, and then a scenario where you need a special license to drive an internal combustion engine vehicle or, you know, especially if it's like a classic car or something like that, but conventional yeah. everyday ICEs, maybe 40, 50 years. And that's just a wild guess. That's so wild, oh, yeah. right? So as a, as a, as a fellow car guy, I mean, obviously, you know, I've, I've driven a Tesla. It's a very fun to drive, but myself, and I also understand, you know, this is the direction for the future, both for efficiency, for environmental reasons as well. If I if I have the means to do so, I would love to continue to own, you know, at least a, you know, for for recreational purposes, an internal combustion engine with a manual transmission. Uh, that that would be. I, That's important. That's actually very important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's it's it's hard to see them going away entirely, but obviously, you know, you look at the the price of, for example, as these economies of scale start hitting more and more. As lithium-ion batteries, the price starts to decrease to produce these things, and and the the length 
of their charge increases as solar power gets cheaper and cheaper. And it does seem like this is this is absolutely the direction of the future, as as well as you know, kind of the where we hopefully you know should be going as well. But um, let, let's talk a little bit more about you know some of these big names here. The biggest, of course, is Tesla. You know, uh, Elon Musk recently surpassed Bill Gates on the world's on the, the list of the world's wealthiest individuals. I saw the story a, a, a little while back. But one of the big reasons for the, that Tesla has done so well and increased their sales is because of what they've been doing in China. So they set up that gigafactory outside of Shanghai very quickly. And I, I read recently they've already been uh, exporting the models that they've been making in Shanghai to to Europe as well. Tesla really seems to be going all in on China. Why is that? And uh, and tell us a little bit more about what they're doing in China. Well, very simply, China is leading the world uh, on, on on EV volume, right? And so uh, there's still very little capacity, manufacturing capacity globally. And Tesla is leading the way with building factories in Shanghai, number uh, number one, to uh, add to their global capacity in Fremont. And they've broken ground on a factory in Berlin that I believe will be complete by Q, end of Q1 21. So that's going to really accommodate the demand in the EU. And I know that with these factories, there's, there's also battery capacity. So they're just building beachheads in all these major regions so that they can control pricing a bit better. Number one and number two, import duties aren't going to be affected. Uh, or they're not going to be their yeah. vehicle sales uh, price aren't going to be affected by import duties because uh, right now any vehicle built in China that's shipped to the United States gets 27.5% of duty slapped on it. And so I know that Volvo and GM uh, are shipping vehicles from China to the United States and they're pretty much eating that, that duty. Uh, in mm. order to keep the, the MSRP close to, uh, pre-tariffs that were, uh, started in 2018. And if you guys can remember when the trade war was started, that's kind of around the same time that that tariff was implemented. So. Well, it does seem like what Tesla is doing. I mean, Elon Musk is, is a notable visionary, whether or not you want to believe the, the propaganda around him or the PR, <laughs> but, but what he is doing, I mean, and, and, you know, he's always, somebody like him is always looking, you know, to, to build bigger and build bigger and build bigger with an eye towards the future. And that is something that is very difficult to do in an environment where capital is restricted. But right now where, you know, his, the share price of Tesla is going through the roof where capital is not hard to come by for a company like that. They really do seem to be to be making a lot of these investments to to kind of diversify their supply chain, whether it be what they built in um, and this was earlier, but what they built in Shanghai, building in uh, in Germany. And, and it, I, I read recently they're also looking to um, to build something uh, in or around Indonesia as well. I don't know how you know how far they've gone into that, but um, it, it does seem like they are trying to to you know diversify their supply chain as much as possible. To, to kind of ensure their beachhead in a uh, in a diversified multipolar world. But did, didn't um, Tesla get a bunch of 
subsidies or, or like cheap capital or something to set up in in Shanghai. So they also kind of at that time took advantage of you know, maybe some handouts. I think that 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 uh, video of Elon doing the dance in Shanghai kind of uh, always kind of I'm always remind remembering that when uh, I think about his entry into China. But it is I mean it does make a lot of sense to open something in these major kind of economies and and actually too in your in your Sino Auto Insight newsletter which is free uh, and people can sign up for little plug for you there. Uh, you mentioned that um, thanks <laughs> that uh, you know you're talking about Chanos and who's a a pretty famous short seller, right? He's also short Tesla, um, and he's kind of shorted on the financials, the fundamentals, kind of the rearview mirror, so to speak. But when you look forward and you look at where the growth will be for autos, you got to kind of look to Asia, right? That's that's what you say here in your in your newsletter. I think that's, you know, Tesla's yeah. doing the right thing, right? Yeah. I mean, if we talk about China in particular, right, it plays well into Tesla's global domination strategy, right? They launched the Model Y in the United States recently, and I think that's going to be a very successful vehicle. They're going to start uh, shipping those to customers within the next quarter or Q1 of 21, and it's about 50% higher price than the Model 3, but right now, China consumers are gravitating towards SUVs. If you see Volkswagen over the course of the next four or five years, they're going to, they've been traditionally known as sedan makers or, you know, suppliers of sedans here in China, but they're going to flip their entire product lineup pretty much to either crossovers or SUVs because that's where China is going. So I could see, totally see the Model Y being a huge success here. The the price is going to cap some demand, uh, but it will compete directly with Neo, Beamer, Daimler, and Audi when it launches. And I'm thinking it will win more of those battles than it will lose. Uh, it's, it's how many more battles that should worry those companies. Uh, if the market, you know, if the sales team sees any softness in demand for that Model Y, They'll quickly reduce pricing, is my guess. They've not been afraid to do it in the past here with the Model 3. Uh, in fact, I was told uh, that they cut pricing in November and for the Model 3 and had their best sales month, I think, this year at about 21,000 units. So there's a ton of flexibility with building locally, right? And in addition to that, the Model 3 and the Model Y share more than – 50% of their parts. So that creates a huge economy of scale for them. And so if we're talking 75 grand for the Model Y, there's a lot of room for price reduction on that. And again, he's, he's going to play for keeps because the, the, the car companies, um, next year are going to be launching a lot. The traditional automakers are going to be launching a lot of product into, the China market and the, the European market. So I think mm. we're, we're going to see some some fun competition in the EU and China in particular. Mm. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about China. And I, I recently uh, you know, wrote wrote a, a couple of articles about this where I kind of looked into you know, the supply chain around EVs in China. 
Uh, and I hadn't, I, I had, I had heard anecdotally some of this before and I learned more of it when I was digging into it, but it's really remarkable how much of the EV supply chain China based, you know, so much. Of course, we all have the, the cliche. We don't all heard of it of China being the, you know, the, the uh, factory of the world. But so much of that really is they get the raw materials from somewhere else. Maybe they process it or manufacture the end item in China and then ship it somewhere else. When it comes to electronic vehicles, you know, for the batteries, for the lithium ions, you know, they, they, they get that rare earth there. They process it. Then they make the, the car and they, uh, and then oftentimes they sell it to Chinese consumers. So it, as you know, these geopolitical tensions rise, what does it mean when so much of these EV, so much of the EV supply chain is based around China, where a lot of these other countries might be resistant on, you know, being too attached to China? Well, with the, with the EV market being the largest here in China, it kind of plays in um, to, you know, having to be in this market anyways. And most of those automakers have a lot of capacity that they're just going to eventually switch over from ICE to, e to, to NEVs here locally. So in the short term, for sure, um, there's a bit of reliance on China. But in the long term, you know, these EV makers are going to have to go abroad, specifically the China EV makers, right? If you, if you recall, we talked about NEO's thousand percent increase this year. Now that share price has international growth priced into it, right? So, you know, short term, you can export cars to the, to the EU, but long term, if they're going to be a serious player, they got to also invest uh, locally to build capacity in the EU. So I think that's going to help with balancing out that leverage that China has with, you know, being the hub for EVs for now. And, you know, like we said uh, earlier, the United States has that tariff. So guess what? If they want to tackle the second largest uh, vehicle market in the world, they're going to have to invest in capacity locally there as well. Cause I don't see those tariffs being, uh, lifted at least next year by the Biden administration. I just don't see any reason they would do that. So in the short term, yeah, for sure. But, you know, if, if these Chinese EV players want to be able to establish themselves Internationally, they're going to have to really, really hope that the Chinese government is 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 very accommodating, a bit more diplomatic with uh, some of the markets that they want to play in. You think that that crosses over to how the Chinese kind of authorities or whatever are treating foreign, you know, automakers in China, and kind of whether they can get kind of I guess things they want and and be treated you know, quote unquote, fairly. Um, I mean, cause right. There's some give and take there. I, I imagine. Yeah. You know, I think what's, what's important to, to remember is that Volkswagen sells, uh, I want to say three and a half million cars in China. Toyota sells a few million and GM sells a few million as well. And that means uh, the, the plants here are working at capacity, right? Which means that they're employing 
Chinese labor. So if they're not playing nice with the foreign automakers here in China, it's gonna sh- they're gonna shoot themselves in the foot because the 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 Chinese factories are gonna likely have to close, right? So that's where you know they they still need to play nice because these automakers and these tier one suppliers, tier two suppliers, they're huge employers of of, of Chinese labor. So so I think that's where um, the global market comes into play a bit, right? And and whether they want to be protectionist or not, it it it's a bit more difficult than just okay, you know, you you we're not going to be nice to you guys anymore, and we're going to protect the market for our domestic automakers, right? I just don't know uh, because again, they're building locally. All the foreign automakers are building locally, so right. so it's it's yeah. not. It's not the same as, okay, we're importing everything and people are buying it and we're just going to be protectionist about about trade, right? Yeah, autos seem to be something that, that needs to be built locally just because of kind of uh, transportation costs and then how much labor input goes into it does end up being making a big difference to the, the economy where the autos are sold, so... Uh, you do see a lot of countries around the world sort of kind of giving preference, preferential treatment to autos that are built locally. So, yeah, I mean, that that's going to require a lot of capital, though, right? If if these, you know, if Xpeng or Neo want to go to the U.S. market, they're going to have to either find a JV partner and help out or, you know, get some get a lot of capital and go invest it. Yeah, well, if you know, if you. you so, so Xiaopeng, uh, went to the, is, uh, just announced yesterday, I think two days ago, that they're gonna go to the markets and, um, sell an additional 40, 40 million shares, right? So, you know, this is them getting when the getting's good, right? And Tesla also said they were gonna raise five billion dollars, which is less than one percent of their market cap currently, right? So, so there, there's, right now, they're not having any problems raising capital. But it becomes this is the conundrum for for the Chinese EV makers, right? Because they haven't really won their home markets, right? And and I I would argue that 2021 is just going to even be more competitive in China uh, with the number of products that are going to come out uh, across the board from the from the traditional OEMs. And then to have to uh, expand internationally, I think uh, Xiaopeng has already shipped uh, vehicles to Norway to try to sell them. Uh, and, and I think that'll be kind of the gateway and kind of a test bed for them for the EU, right? But and, and, and Elliot, you can appreciate this living in Southeast Asia right now. You know, the EU is is super diverse, right? There's 17, 18 countries or something. Or, 20 countries and different, different cultures, different languages. So these markets are very different, just like Southeast Asia. So, you know, it's a, it's kind of a misnomer to say there's 450 million people that live in the EU and this is the market. No, 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 no. You know, you can assume that the German market, which is the largest vehicle market in the EU is probably going to be a bit more protectionist than some of these other European countries. And, and, if we look at Norway, they buy 
less than 300,000 vehicles a year. So if, if, if I haven't won my home market and I have the pressure to expand internationally from a management standpoint, that's pretty complicated. Yeah. And, and where, where do you invest? If, it's, it's not like a, an app, right? Where you can try to expand at, at relatively low cost. You know, you have, you often have to. Yeah. Like really invest in, in, in setting up operations there. That's a, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Exactly. And you can't, you can't trust agents for branding and being able to communicate your brand positioning and, and all that good stuff. Right. Cause, you know, I'll give you a, a quick example. Uh, the, the Chinese consumer, when they're shopping for vehicles, I think connectivity is like top three priority for them when shopping for vehicles i would argue that that's probably not even a top five you know demand for a lot of folks in the eu so now they have to completely change their branding strategy or at least marketing strategy what how would you define connectivity i would say you know 5g availability i would say being able to download apps being able to integrate with my my mobile phone, you know, like WeChat kind of abilities and, 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 and social media via the infotainment system. I would say that is a huge priority for because because, again, the Xiaopengs and the, the WMs, they're priced at around 200, 250,000 RMB. So the average consumer or buyer of those vehicles is actually quite young here in China, right? Neo is selling more along the lines of 300, 400,000 RMB. So they're going to be uh, a bit older and, and more mature. Uh, but they still prioritize connectivity. Okay. So just marketing to the different countries in the EU is going to be really, really challenging. I'm not saying they won't be able to do it, but it's, it's, there's going to be a lot of pressure, show results quickly, or that thousand percent increase is, you know, the market's going to take some of that back, right? I, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned these, like the tech and the infotainment systems, you know, the, the, obviously the hardware here gets, so much focus, right? The batteries, the the actual car itself, the zero to sixty, etc. But the other side of that is uh, is the software that goes into these cars that are essentially very large computers, right? And especially as you know, China I think has made a lot more kind of steps forward towards uh, autonomous driving and things like that. So, w- what is your take kind of on the the competition or on the software front and what are some of the kind of competitive factors and who are the players that are, that are involved? So the software, I, I would generally categorize them in three big buckets. You know, there's going to be autonomous, which is a bit more when, when, when people hear autonomous, they think of robo taxis, right? But autonomous is also ADAS, which is, is the advanced driving assistance. So like, Parking assist and kind of, uh, you know, adaptive cruise control, right? So, so it's not necessarily where you don't have to pay attention to the road at all, but, you know, there's a lot of software and hardware involved with some of that ADAS and then infotainment and the connected. And then the, the major players are, are thinking, so, you know, for the, for the v- providers, 
there's going to be Baidu, there's going to be Alibaba and Tencent, you know, the usual suspects. Uh, because what what they're really trying to do is infiltrate and gather that data so that they can analyze it and develop services to to consumers within the vehicle, right? And so in the early stages when the car companies didn't have that capability in-house, they quickly partnered, right? So there's a lot of foreign automakers in China that are partnered with Alibaba and using and are using like AliOS and things like that to kind of run their software. But what we're likely going to see is a pullback on some of those partnerships because the automakers do realize that they're kind of giving away the farm because if we're transitioning from traditional ICEs to to electric vehicles, and then those electric vehicles are going to have uh, very con- are going to be very connected, and the next generation of vehicle is going to have a lot of services. I'll give you a, 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 an easy example. Tesla is selling their full self driving for ten thousand dollars as a subscription service, right? So there's a huge opportunity, at least. Everybody thinks there's a huge opportunity to sell services within the vehicle, okay? And and with some of that software, there's going to be politics involved, and 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 because there's a lot of data involved, right? And so uh, when it comes to the software, uh, not only are the OEMs going to have to look at it and bring a lot of that in-house because they want to have that core competency themselves and not have to share any revenue with their partners, but they also don't want to share that data, right? And so Tesla's a, a prime example of where most traditional OEMs want to be because they're vertically integrated. Most of the software and even down to the chips, they design a lot of their own chips, they design their batteries, and they um, develop most of their software, which means that they keep most of the revenue that's generated, right? And so to, to answer your question, uh, Elliot, the major software players uh, in or the, the major tech companies in China are also involved in automotive software. But there's a lot of different layers and it's actually pretty complicated. I don't I don't pretend to understand 100% of it myself because it's still trying to figure itself out, right? I think 2021 will really crystallize a lot of these partnerships. The the OEMs will finally have to look at themselves in the mirror to figure out what limitations to the capabilities that they have are, right? Because, you know, generally speaking, 2021 is when the traditional OEMs, whether you're Japanese, Korean, American, or German, you need to become a software company in 2021, mm. right? Yeah. And what they were likely very surprised about is was these announcements of banning petrol engines. You know, I don't think yeah. many of them were thinking that was going to happen during a pandemic, right? And so yeah. now they're now they're scrambling. Right. They're trying to figure out how to pull in product 
They're trying to figure out how to secure key commodities, reconcile financing for, uh, for operations, you know, right size, and then, and then to hire the right staff and then right size their manufacturing footprints. So all this stuff is happening behind the scenes yeah. right now at the automakers. And part of that is reconciling their software and hardware stack, right? Yeah. And whether, whether or not they can trust, um, their partners to share in the revenue, number one, and then number two, whether they have the confidence to bring a lot of that stuff in-house. So um, and that's where a lot of the uncertainty lies for the OEMs, for sure. Yeah, it, it's it's really, um, it, it does seem like the strategy for a lot of these, these car companies were to say, okay, well, we're going to continue to make our cars more efficient, and we're going to dabble in EVs. And we're gonna we're gonna see what works, and then as as the demand increases, we'll transition over. And the assumption was, it does seem like that the the government pressure, the regulatory pressure, would be in efficiency, whereas the 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 price and the cons and the consumer pressure would eventually lead towards electric vehicles. Now, what what seems to be happening is that the regulatory pressure is also just saying, get rid of. Get rid of uh, uh, ICEs, um, and that's and that's. I don't know if that if they were all preparing for this. Uh, anyway, James, do you have any any additional questions? I mean, the only thing I'm kind of curious about is when you said before that Tesla, you know, 50% of the hardware can transfer over. I mean, I imagine from from a software perspective, it must be very high percentage. Do you have any idea, kind of what that is and uh, oh yeah, it, it's it's it's. It, I mean, software from from a from just Tesla. Or, yeah, for just Tesla. Oh, I I would say almost a hundred percent. But they also need to think regionally, right? Because they're gathering and uh, they're collecting data, right? And so in China, you have to have a local partner for a lot of that stuff. Currently, and this is kind of. A, a weird little twist. If you, you can send us data over to China and, and consolidate it and utilize it in your machine learning and your algorithm and your system, right? But Chinese data cannot be sent over to the United States. Now, is that loophole going to be closed in 2021 or 2022? I don't know, right? And, and if you think about some of these companies who have a single IT strategy, that's going to really change things. And they're going to have to take a step back and see how and who they can work with here in China in order to be successful. And again, the, the services are, are going to be uh, affected by that. The autonomous vehicle features are going to be affected by that. And, and the connected vehicle features are going to be affected by that. And so that's where Tesla is kind of in the same boat as everybody else, right? But from a hardware software stack. Political risk consultants out there, listen up. Yeah, you know, like. It's funny because it's, <laughs> it's just like. Byte dance and TikTok and Douyin and how you have to separate separate them. I mean, we're talking about kind of the softwareification of everything, right? Software eats the world. Um, 
And it's the same thing. It's, it might be the same thing for autos where you have to have different IT stacks in different countries, uh, you know, managing. I mean, it just kind of increases the complexity of something that is a little bit less complex, you know, at least in terms of employees and, and cloud and things like that. You know, it, it makes software kind of the digital electron sort of side it a little like it, more complex like it is for, you know, the physical side. Interesting theme. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if I can add to, to, to Elliot's question earlier about how everyone's kind of relying on China for the EVs. Now the chips, um, they might be made in Taiwan. They might be made in China, China, but you know, a lot of that firmware that's being used is licensed in the U S right. And so that's where the U S has some leverage, you know, and, Think, think of it this way. Every, just, you know, so many autonomous vehicles use the NVIDIA chip to kind of power their, their machine learning CPU in the back, right? So, uh, there's, there's some concern on, 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 on China's side that if the, the relationship sours quite a bit, they could be, you know, it could be a Huawei situation, mm. right? Where it's like you, you can't have access to these chips or the, the firmware that runs them. Right. And so, um, I don't think, I don't see a scenario of that happening, but I do see a bit more scrutiny for these, uh, autonomous vehicle software companies that straddle the line between being American and being Chinese, because I would think that you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example, um, like AutoX and Too Simple. You know, they, they, they straddle line because they have operations and pilots in the U.S., but, you know, they have pretty decent-sized dev teams in China, okay? And so they're transferring data back and forth, or, you know, at least one way into, into China, uh, I'm certain. And But if you look at who their investors are and you peel some layers of the onion back, I would venture to guess most of those investors are going to be from here, from China. So, you know, is that a, is that a big deal? Is that going to have more scrutiny in the coming years? Maybe, right? So some good signposts here to kind of keep an eye out for. It is funny how like politics, yeah. you know, as an investor doing this for a while, you know, politics was sort of something you could just, people would just say, Oh, you don't have to pay attention to it at all. You know, just, uh, just, you know, I mean, regulations you do have to look at, but like kind of the geopolitical stuff you can kind of safely ignore if you're an equity investor to some degree. Not anymore. That is definitely not the case anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, th- I, think, I think specifically in the oh, last yeah. four years. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. <laughs> Anyways, we, we, we're at, we're at, uh, 43 minutes at this, at this point. So we should probably wrap it up. Anyways, uh, Thule, thank you so much for joining us. Sino Auto Insights. You can go to sinoautoinsights.com and subscribe to their newsletter. This is, I mean, there's a reason why we've had to on two different times on our podcast because he is kind of our go-to guy when it comes to, uh, China's EV and auto sector. Two, do you have anything else you'd like to say, uh, for our listeners for how they can get uh, in, in touch with you or, or, or read your stuff or anything else? Yeah, sure. Um, anyone who's interested in learning more about Sino Auto Insights can contact me directly at tle at sinoautoinsights.com. 
happy to, you know, chew the fat about mobility, EVs, uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, what's going on in the U.S., what's going on in Asia. That's my thing. So uh, thanks a lot for having me, guys. Our pleasure as always. Thanks again, too. Thanks again to Tu Lee from Saito Auto Insights for joining us once again. You can subscribe to his newsletter uh, at SaitoAutoInsights.com. James, any any thoughts or takeaways you have from our conversation? Yeah, just that, um, you know, Tu Lee's newsletter is great. You guys go to SaitoAutoInsights.com, sign up for it. Uh, it's a great look into what's going on in China, the automotive industry there. And, you know, EVs are crazy hot right now. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the Looking at just the value of, of a company like Tesla right now, that is, I mean, I don't have it offhand, but it's been shooting through the roof. All these EV companies have been shooting through the roof. And what we are seeing, you know, as, as we talked and discussed in our conversation, is that you know, this is this EV future is probably coming sooner rather than, later sooner than most of us might be anticipating and there is no more important country uh, at the hub of all of this or at the center of all of this than than china and in as far as i'm concerned at least in the english language there is no better resource for following all of this than 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 what two is writing so you know we're partial because he's a, a friend of the podcast but you know he, he he writes great stuff and uh you know he really keeps a finger on the pulse of of this industry so yeah, so thanks again to two. Thanks to uh, to Peter, to David, to Suzanne, James. Anything else you wanna you wanna say before we sign off? Yeah, I guess um, you know, happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe out there, and uh, thanks for listening. Techno.com/newsletters for your daily dose of China tech, and we'll catch you next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye bye now.